0: And now I'm just like, now we beating these guys, which is what I should be doing. Um, Did you hear that? Yeah. We good? Yeah. Just hang on one sec. The
1: call might drop. We've had this issue before. Well, 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 ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. What can we say about tonight's uh, guest that we have? Um, if there is someone who is all about what a Hoops Journey podcast is about, it's it's our guest that we have. Um, really appreciate the time that uh, this gentleman has given to us. He's uh, literally just landed um, in Orlando into the bubble and um, has given up his time this evening to sit down and chat with us. So we are very, very fortunate to have We've, Corbs, we've made it, man. We're coast to coast. I mean, we could go a little bit further east, but like we're pretty much coast mm-hmm. to coast now. Uh, a, uh, a prideful man from PEI, a, a rich basketball history, a guy who's worked his way, th- you know, through the coaching ranks and is now an assistant coach with the Boston Celtics. Uh, we are pleased to have Scott Morrison with us tonight. Thanks for being here, coach. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, Michael Buffer wouldn't have done a better job uh, with that introduction. I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> no worries. I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm getting my craft here where, you know, we're only a few in still, but I'm working on it. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> we always check in with people and obviously, you know, you have a new young family, which um, as, as I'm sure as hard as it was to, you know, kind of say goodbye to everyone today what, before you hopped on that flight the the craziness of covid the timing for you and you know your wife and your new little newborn do how have you guys gotten through covid and how's it been and how special has the time been actually you know i know as a coach it's probably hard to be away from the game and what you love but the time that you just you just had with your family is something you probably can never get back again so how's everyone doing
0: and what did you guys do to just make the time go by Yeah, Oh, thanks for asking. Everyone's doing pretty well. Um, I was actually speaking to Coach Stevens about this on the plane earlier tonight on the way down to Orlando. Just, you know, we were kind of saying how tough it was to say goodbye and um, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, given that everyone stayed healthy, at least so far through all of this, it was kind of a really a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to spend that much time with your family. Uh, In our business, you don't get that many days in a row at home, basically four months straight. Uh, that's probably the longest I've ever been home, maybe, you know, since since college. And, uh, you know, took advantage of every minute, I enjoyed every minute of it, or, or pretty much. I thought the first couple of days when the season first was put on suspension that my wife might kill me quite early <laughs> on to the quarantine before COVID even got to me. Um, <laughs> but kind of found our groove. And and uh, like I said, it was a great, it was a great blessing to be able to spend time with the family like that. And we kind of made the most of it and found a, a silver lining, but also made it that much tougher to go today, but um, I think we'll be stronger for it in the long run. So hopefully a lot of the coaches and players were able to experience the same, the same thing. Yeah, for sure. And that was going to be my next question
1: was that you're still married. So that's good. I know in our household, we've had some some moments too where (laughs) the looks are across the living room. It's like, okay, what do we do here? And your guy is like, he's pretty new. So the sleep and all that, but I mean, what a cool time and and glad that you guys are all safe and, and healthy and, um just uh, like you said, it seems like everyone's just doing the best they can and, and make the best of it right now. Um, what's the first impressions of landing? I mean, I, you've been in your room for like seven minutes. And how's it going to go? And what do you expect to see the next few weeks before we kind of just jump into your story?
0: Well, I'm, I'm you know, as sad as it was to leave home today. I'm, I'm very excited and, and intrigued by the setup they have here. It's almost like they set up uh, you know, a one-sport Olympics in about three months um so it seems very well organized a lot of precautions are put into place and you know we're going to be we've been getting tested every second day for the last two three weeks and we're going to be tested every day here and um different apps and and rings and bracelets that we have on to to monitor our i don't know what the heck they're monitoring but just to try and find out if we're showing any symptoms early i think the whole key is to if someone does have the virus to make sure that they catch it early before it spreads, obviously, and and just keep it contained. And uh, hopefully everyone in the bubble here follows the rules, unlike what seems like most of America has stopped doing, sadly. Um, But if the NBA can pull this off, and I think I have confidence that they they can, it's going to be a great event and kind of a a, a lifetime experience, hopefully that we never have to experience again, but we'll look back on many times and, and I'm sure there'll be, books and documentaries about it when when all is said and done so it should be it should be cool i'm looking forward to it awesome good to hear
1: well let's just let's just get into it man so tell me a little bit about young scotty mo out representing pei what was your life like as a child what what got you into basketball were you like a multi-sport kind of guy tell us a little bit about like life You know, growing up in Prince Edward Island, too, I know you're very prideful, and that means a lot to you, um, which is super, super dope. And just what that was like, your family dynamic. I know your dad was involved in your life coaching-wise and stuff like that. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what it was like out there.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think kind of the theme of this whole podcast for me is probably going to be just a series of lucky breaks that I got in my life. And the first one was, in terms of my basketball career, was just being born. Um, with my dad being uh, a head coach at UPEI. He was head coach of the girls' team when I was just really young. And then I think when I was five or six, he switched over to the men's team for the next uh, 18 years. And just growing up, I grew up around basketball, so I, I was an only child. And, but at the same time, I had like 12 brothers every year um, on the team. I spent as much time as I could with the team, went to all the practices I could, games, um used to travel on a lot of road trips at that time. They used to drive in, in vans, like 15 passenger vans. And when I was really small, I would sit between the two, two bucket seats up front, usually on the ball bag. And then as I got a little bit older, I would take a seat up front and the boys would pick me up and like hand me back all the way to the back of the van um, and plop me on top of the tire. There used to be an old spare tire at the, the back row of those 15 passenger vans. So. Uh, when I was back there, I learned a lot about life. Probably some stuff that maybe I should have had the earmuffs on for.
1: <laughs>
0: but the guys in the back of the, the van taught me a lot those years. Uh, everything from music to, you know, racial inequality and injustice stuff that we're talking about still now. Um, basketball, you know, you you name it. Um, that was kind of my. Uh, those are my big brothers that I look up to and I idolized. And happy to say that I'm still friends with a lot of them now. But it also helped my, my basketball career because I got to see some higher-level ball than I would have seen normally being where I, where I grew up. I grew up in a little village called Morrell. had about 300 people in it, mainly fishermen, farmers. And my dad would commute to work every day, but a 30-minute drive. So after school, I'd hop in the car and we'd go. Yeah, that was like I said, that was my first kind of break, getting to be exposed to that. Uh, we got to high school. I don't even think our school had a team, actually, when I got there. I was also lucky, maybe my second lucky break was to have a group of friends all the same age that that was into sports. Um, So my two sports were baseball and basketball. Had probably the same six or seven guys on my team all the way through to the end of high school. Uh, We were able to field the team in high school, and um, our team ended up being ranked the number one team in in the province our grade 12 year, which for those of you bigwigs from B.C. and Ontario, it's not a very – Strong league, but for us, coming from Morrell High School, um, home of the Marlins, it was a big accomplishment and kind of like capped off our, our high school run. And then uh, from there, kind of fulfilled the dream to play for my dad, you know, followed in the footsteps of all those guys I, I looked up to growing up and played five years for UPEI. Had a pretty good run individually, in part due to our poor run as a team. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was probably the, the classic average player on a bad team that put up good stats because he's on a bad team dagger. Um, so my 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 two big accomplishments were setting i still have the the conference record out there the aus conference for threes made in a career and i got my dad fired most successful coach in the history of the school um just went down in flames by the time i graduated so that was his last year was my last year um, and thankfully, he made a he made a comeback uh, with Holland College a few years later, and took those ah. guys to the national championship. Um, yeah, so he, Holland. He still got this, he still finished on a high note. He built he built basically built two programs up. So he's kind of a legendary basketball figure in PA. Yeah, that's my that's basically my my youth in a nutshell. I probably should have played baseball as I got older more and made a run at that, given my stature and athletic ability. But I just love basketball too much to to give it up and I wanted to play at the highest level that I could. That's awesome.
1: Uh Corbs, you have to excuse him. I he's a big Yankees fan, so you know mm. I guess we'll still move on with the podcast even though we're nine minutes and fifty seconds in, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. We have no
2: choice, I guess.
0: <laughs> if, you, if the expos were still around I'd, I'd be a loyal expos fan, but I had to jump ship to a winner when it was when it was going down there. Oh. There you go. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, that's cool too. I didn't know
1: that about your dad because I remember, like, I, I played at Langara and then played at Brandon after. But like, I remember Holland College just kind of coming out of nowhere, right? All of a sudden, they're yeah. a nationally ranked program because I had still had friends that were coaching in the in the Pac West in that college league and stuff, and being like Holland College, like, what the heck? And I had no idea that that was your dad. That's crazy because he definitely like you say, built that program because it was not, there was nothing really on the map. And then all of a sudden they were, you know, a national championship kind of contender and making nationals a lot of time. That's awesome. And I love the stories about the van. Yeah, My brother in high school, you know, those day, that was the days, right. You could sit on the, on the wheel or you could sit up front or like, I would be the eighth yeah. guy in the minivan um, because my brother could take six other guys on the team and like, I'd go follow his high school team around. And those are the memories and like, those are your heroes when you're young you know what I mean? And, and just to like be around that, um, that's super, super cool. Uh, what position in baseball?
0: Uh, at the prime of my career, like I I played Canada games, baseball and and like national level baseball. I was a shortstop. Okay. Um, Hmm. I was told I had a good enough bat speed and a good enough arm, but just a 10 cent glove. And I knew that was true. So I never really got the the hands part of it down to be the, the next Jeter. But had had a lot of fun playing baseball, and I actually miss it a lot. But like I said, I just, I just couldn't uh, break away from basketball to commit to it full time.
1: Now, to just touch a little bit. I think you made a really cool point about which, you know, is a little bit of a crack on the big wigs in BC and whatever. But like you literally said, we were fortunate enough to have a team. So just talk about you're in a town of population of 500, but how lucky you were to have a group of buddies that I'm sure you're probably still your buddies to this day. And when you do make it back home, you still get an opportunity to see some of them and how important it was to have kind of a group of gym rats being around and getting the game and uh, going and, and just being a part of that. Like just touch on that, how fun that was and what that was like, because it's a unique thing. I think a lot of times here, we just take for granted that, oh yeah, we got a coach, we got a program and you know, parents are pointing the finger at the coach and saying they're not doing enough. And we got a guy here saying that we were fortunate enough to even just have a team.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think we really realized how lucky we were at the time. But just having, you know, followed, you know, that area and that that little village since I left, uh, there hasn't been a group like us. I, I don't mean like we were any kind of special talent or anything, but just having enough people that you could play, you know, three on three pickup, you know, any night of the week or in the summer or you could go play some baseball or take some bat and practice with each other. And I'm sure there's been a lot of good athletes come out of there. I know there has been since, but we were just fortunate to have a group that kind of was able to grow together. And, you know, we had a couple of coaches, my dad included, that took us kind of under their wings really early on. And we were able to improve probably more than we would have otherwise just because we could kind of grow all together, coaches and players, and kind of accumulate it with the, the Canada Games. Like we had seven guys from our town. At our Canada Games baseball team, which is pretty cool wow. for a place like that. And then uh, with the basketball team, we didn't end up winning the gold medal in, in PEI, but we, we medaled, and that was a big achievement for our school. So, you know, I mean, it's not, not very important on the big scale things, but when you're growing up, it's kind of a, it's kind of nice to have those those memories. Absolutely. Um, did you – at
1: what point when you're at UPI, like, do you realize that you want to coach, or is it something in the back of your mind – um, or do you think it was just something ingrained to you, like, just passed down through the water that, like, when did you realize, you know, I think I want to move on and become a bit of a coach when I'm, when I'm done playing hoops?
0: I'd say pretty early on. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a cowboy and an astronaut. And then, uh, when I was in high school, I thought I could be a physiotherapist. Then I realized I had to take science classes. Um, Too so I was shame, like, well, man, co-, you know, coaching it is, you but my that. dad wasn't a full-time coach either. So the- he was a, a teacher his whole time. So he, he taught math and, and economics. So that was kind of where I was stronger in and that's why I ended up taking in, in at UPI as well. But probably near the end of my high school career or started my UPI career, I thought I wanted to play pro if I could. I'll come back to that later probably. And then I knew about the coaching institute out in Victoria, I believe, which was kinda of hot back then. And a lot of the full time CIS at the time, U Sport now, coaches were coming out of that school. So I kind of set a goal for myself to get to that school at some point in time. I never did end up getting there, but I can remember talking about it pretty early on at EPI and saying this is what I wanted to do when I finished playing. So it, I took a different route, route to get to where, where I am, but I kind of always had the goal of, of, of coaching at least at that level. And at certain points in time, I thought maybe I had my sights set a little too high and things came around to get to where I am now. But it was a lot of, it was a long journey to get here. Yeah, do you do you like to coach defense cuz that's what you, you you would have learned out here? <laughs> <that> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I I don't. That's not, that's <laughs> not true. I, I I do. When I was at Lakehead for 10 years, we were one of the better defensive teams in the conference during our kind of our successful run. And then I got to Maine in the D League and I was kind of pushed to the offensive side by the front office to just, you know, experiment different analytics things and Right. Trying to improve our offensive system. So I kind of focus more on offense. And then with the Celtics here, I'm on the offensive side of the ball full time. So the only defense I do is figuring out how to score on other teams' defenses.
1: (laughs) they are doing all right that way. That's good. Um, So then how how do you end up at Dalhousie? Um, And you jump in right in with the women's program and uh, under like a legendary coach. And how does that fall into place for you? And what did you learn? And like, that's pretty cool. Pretty, pretty pretty cool way to start out the coaching career.
0: Yeah. So, that was probably my first big coaching break. Uh, my lucky break was at Dow. So, I, I, went, I actually went to Germany to play pro after I graduated and quickly learned it wasn't as glamorous as I thought. And I didn't get the highest level offers. I had some lower level offers, but I kind of thought. It was beneath me, and well, I wasn't really feeling it. And I'll come back to that later, too, which was probably, you know possibly a mistake and kind of a regret of mine. But regardless, I came back, and a good friend of mine, Doug Newson, who played with me at UPI, had done his MBA at, at Dow. And uh, I thought I would try that just because I had no idea what to do. And I remember actually I used to work for our village maintenance crew in the summers, and I was sitting with my buddy in our pickup truck. We were driving to, like, the dump. One day that summer, and I said, "He's like, what are you gonna do next year?" I said, "I think I'm gonna do my MBA." And he stopped the truck and he said, "Scott, you know you're a pretty good player, and you've always been one of the best players around here, but I don't think you're good enough to make the NBA." And uh, I just laughed. I said, "No, MBA, MBA is business, business school." So we had, I never forget that too. He had a great laugh. I said, "Thanks for having faith in me." So I did, I did a two year MBA. The first year, I didn't do anything with basketball. I played men's league you know, stayed in shape, but didn't coach or play on any team for the first time, you know, ever. At the end of that year, it was a two-year program. I knew I was going back for a second year. I, I said, I got to get back into coaching and kind of start this this coaching deal. And I was actually going to speak with Tim McGarrigle this one day, who was the men's head coach at Dalhousie at the time. And on my way to his office, um, Carolyn Savoy, who was the legendary women's coach there, stopped me to, to chat. She knew me from just playing, you know, and, and being around. And she said, you know, I lost my assistant um, this year. Would you be interested in joining my staff next year? And I didn't even hesitate. I said, yes, because I knew that Coach McGarrigle had like four or five assistants with the men's team. I, he'd just be doing me a favor and keep me around. Whereas I knew Coach Savoy actually needed someone and I'd get a lot more work to do. So I'd be working out the players. I'd be doing some scouting, doing some recruiting, all that stuff. So uh, that was a big break for me, um, which ended up being an even bigger break because about a halfway through that first season, she took me to breakfast and told me that she was taking a sabbatical the following year, and wanted me to be the head coach. So I really locked in at that point in time. Um, really big break for me, you know, being whatever I was, twenty four. Uh, I was going to be the head coach of the girls' team the following year. I kept it I had to keep it a secret for the rest of the season, but um, got really, you know, deep into recruiting because I'd be coaching those players. Um, tried to learn as much as I could from her, you know, during that time. And then once that first season was over, she took a sabbatical, and I graduated uh, my MBA program and, and took over the team. So I really ha- had a job since I um, finished school, which is very fortunate. And uh, that was kind of my real big break in terms of getting into the to the industry.
1: So when you get out of the when you finish breakfast and obviously you say yeah I'll, I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll coach the team or whatever and you get in your car are you like oh oh it or are you like let's go you know what I mean or is it a bit of both because you're you're pretty you're pretty young right but you have a basketball history yeah. you know and, and let's be honest like we've all met people who have never played the game and are great coaches right so that just because you played the game but and doesn't necessarily mean you're going to turn into A decent coach but you're still so young and like that's got to be a little bit overwhelming
0: or were you like let's just go for it it should have been overwhelming but as my sixth grade homeroom teacher used to ask me is it ignorance or arrogance which is my problem and i'm not sure which it was but it was one of those two and i just thought i'd be i'd be smooth and it'd be be great and i was excited which is i mean i wasn't you know a jerk about it but i had confidence and i just didn't know what i was getting into Mm-hmm. plus coach had the, had the team set up pretty good like the program basically you know ran itself her husband stayed back she went to Tennessee to work with Pat Summit and travel a little bit and write a book uh, but her husband stayed back and he did a lot of like the fundraising and stuff like that so the, the hardest parts of a being a, a youth sport coach I didn't have to really deal with but I was able to sharpen you know my recruiting and my player development and uh, my in-game stuff so it was a, it was a great year I had a really enjoyable year we did pretty well and and it kind of led me to my next next break, lucky break, which was um, Coach McGarigal had actually been let go uh, that summer before I uh, was the interim coach. And, and Dalhousie hired John Campbell as their head coach, who had been with Laurentia Women previously. And John and I became great friends that year, the year I was the head coach. And uh, the fall, when, when Coach Savoy was coming back, you know, I didn't really want to... Go back to being an assistant for her. I felt like it was going to be a step down, even though I, I really respected her and learned a lot from her. I wanted to keep moving forward. Um, so I applied for about I probably applied for about two hundred jobs in Canada and the U.S. and maybe got Oof. three or four responses. Um, Sorry, can remember, you repeat that again? I probably applied for two hundred <laughs> jobs and got like three or four responses, and we're talking like grad assistant, um, operations assistant, coach, like anything that was advertised in um, it was just hard, especially back then, it was even harder to break in to mm-hmm. anything in the U.S. as a Canadian, and the Canadian jobs were, were few and far in between. Um, so I actually had applied for the Lakehead women's job that February, knowing that coach was coming back. Uh, the Lakehead job opened up. I applied for it, got no response, zero zero reply, and... I, didn't, I hadn't told John Campbell this, but when the summer came and I was getting desperate for a job, the Lakehead men's job opened up a little bit later. And John said, Hey, why don't you apply for the Lakehead job? And I'm like, why the heck would I apply for the men's job? I couldn't get even a call back for the women's job. And he said, well, this time put my name down as a reference and I'll make a call for you. And it turns out the the Lakehead AD who's still there. Tom Warden was like best friends with the Laurentian AD. And uh, John was tight with the Laurentian AD, made a call. Sure enough, I get a call for an interview um, and fly up. So, just like I said, it's a series of lucky breaks that kind of one thing led to the next one, and uh, I just kept rolling with it. But uh, Coach Savoy made all that possible just by you know, having a little bit of faith in me and, and uh, giving me a big opportunity that perhaps I wasn't ready for. But uh, whether it was ignorance or arrogance on my part, I just I just went with it. Love it. Kids don't even know what homeroom is anymore, by the way.
1: So. Oh my bad! Uh, no, no, I love it. I had to go to homeroom too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, I mean, amazing story, and I just love the fact that, like, pointing out that your grind—you you, you just got after it, like you weren't willing to just say no, like to to go and put your name in and try to get into two hundred different places and get very few, you know, callbacks. Whereas we kind of maybe are in a bit of a generation with some of our young ones where they feel like something should always be coming to them. And it's like that value of just, man, you got to be vulnerable. You've got to be able to put yourself out there. You've got to fall on your face and not get that call back. Um, But then that, if you keep pushing, that opportunity will come up. So there's some powerful stuff in there and that's great. When you, when you jump into Lakehead, where's the program at and what were the biggest challenges? Um, You know, you end up making it to a, to a national final, but, What did it take to get there? And you've had a, you know, you've had a taste of the recruiting and, you know, Lakehead's Thunder Bay, right? So what, what is the, who are you bringing in? Is it the local kids? Is it a little bit of everything? How does all that work? And when do you start to sharpen your skills um, as a coach? Kind of because as a Canadian coach, you got to do a lot, right? (laughs) Like you're not, I'm not, I'm not sure you had a full-time assistant, but there's a lot of things that you're doing that a lot of other coaches don't have to do. Um, so just speak a little bit about that experience and, and how that was.
0: Yeah, for sure. So at this point in time, I, I guess in my career, I stopped getting some lucky breaks, at least temporarily and started learning life lessons or, or career lessons that, um, were brought on by pretty much by mistakes by my part. Um, but stuff that stayed with me for, for, you know, since then I had a bit of a head start because just growing up with my dad, I knew, you know, I could hear him on recruiting calls. I heard him, you know. Talking to sponsors, boosters, things like that. So I had a little bit of a sense of what's going on. But Thunder Bay, I'd never been to. Program was among the they 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 were coming off a decent run, but they had lost everybody, and I wasn't hired until August. I was actually the third choice or fourth choice. I think two or three people turned it down, and then they went to me because they had no one left. Um, so I guess that could could be considered a break too. And my first inclination was to build a team like my dad. It kinda or at least I thought he built the team at UPI, which was bringing in imports uh, from the US, bring in, you know, guys from Toronto, um, give them a good package of scholarships, you, you might say, wink wink, and then um, and then they roll the balls out. <laughs>
1: sounds like uh, sounds like my coach at Brandon who used to I believe played at Lakehead, yeah. We know him.
0: Yes, yes he did. Yeah. And that was it- a rival of my dad's at UPI, when they were at their best, they had many big games against Brandon. Um, oh, really? Sim- very similar, maybe not quite as on the left as Brandon, but um, definitely similar built programs. Um, so that's how I tried to build the team. I took a bunch of transfers, a bunch of Americans, um, and not that there's anything wrong with either of those groups, but I was all about just how good is this player? No more questions asked, get them in. And by our second year, we actually had a decent team. We made the playoffs and won a game. And at this point in time, I'm, again, is it ignorance or arrogance, but I'm, I'm on my way to coaching the Knicks in my own mind. Um, <laughs> and then we hit, hit a wall, and a lot of these guys that I was bringing in with some talent uh, weren't the highest of character, and, and started to catch up with us. Just bad things happening, um, guys not, you know, passing classes, guys disrupting things, not being good in the community. And my coaching style at the time was – in your face, screaming, kicking, um, Bobby Knight. For those people that know who Bobby Knight is, uh, that was my style. Like there's many stories of various objects being strewn about the the <laughs> Thunderdome, as we called it. Um, so we hit rock bottom. Um, I had to go to anger management. I was told I walked into the office one day and my AD called me in and said, "The president has given you two choices. You can resign today, or you can go to anger management." So I said, all right, where's the, where the anger management at? Um, and I learned a lot. That was my first humbling experience. I didn't change fully, but I toned things down a bit and learned to control myself a little bit, and it was good for me. Um, but I, I had to go through it. I had to kind of swallow the pride a little bit. And uh, I like to think if we were winning, it never pro- probably wouldn't have happened. So I'm kind of glad in, in hindsight that we had a couple rough seasons to, for him to choose that that route for me. And then the next thing that happened to me, when we were really at our worst was I was sitting around my apartment one day with my assistant and we we're having a couple beers, which we probably had a few too many of those, those early years. And Steve Nash was announced as MVP. And uh, I'll never forget it because I had like a, like a overwhelming, like feeling of regret and like, just being down on myself a little bit when it happened, like I, I was proud in one hand that like a Canadian one MVP, like it was a huge moment for us as, as you know, Canadian basketball people. Um, but at the same time, I was like, damn, like maybe if I had someone like Nash, when I was younger, I would have aimed a little higher. I would have taken care of my body. You know, I would have worked on my game more. I would have believed in myself. Um, I wouldn't have gave up on my dreams to play pro and all this stuff. Because you know, if he can do it, you know, why couldn't I be at least a little bit better? Who knows what could have happened? I'm not saying I would have been in the NBA or anything like that, but I had a, a big regret. like I didn't give it all I had, and I never was going to be able to go back in time and figure out exactly how good I could have been. So I kind of made a promise to myself that I would change my coaching style, my coaching approach, everything, and not have the same regrets because I was really close to getting fired at this point in time, and the whole thing would have been over right there before it even got started. So I just started – kinda of every year I would try to do something better. So the first year I had to recruit harder because I needed players. You know, the next year I had to try to watch film more. I just study film more. The next year I had to do something else and so forth until we got our program up there. And it was really a changing life, you know, career changing moment for me, at least internally. So um, that that next break that I got was that year that I recruited harder. I got a couple real good kids and I also learned from my mistakes of building the team and just cleared house. So I just cleared house. I brought in like ten freshmen. We went one in 35 that year. Uh, we won one game, but I had all freshmen and I had a couple of good ones. So I had one year left in my contract. And was that 06 record. 07? I believe so. I believe yeah. so. So I had one year left in my contract. They, they wanted to fire me because they already tried to get rid of me once. Um, but I did what they told me to do and toned things down a little bit. And our, the guy I replaced, which is coach Lou Perro, he was a longtime coach there. Um, He was still working as kind of an advisor in the athletic department. He still does. And he went into the AD's office and basically fought for my job. I didn't know this at the time, but I found out after. And basically convinced him that I had two really good players come in. Sure, we didn't do that well this past year, but it was a great sign for the future. And I should get at least the chance to finish my contract. And sure enough, they let me finish it. And the next year, we made nationals. So that was a big turning point for me and also another lesson that coach perro who i don't know the details of him leaving his job and, and how it opened up but most people in his position would be rooting for me to fail um the guy who replaced him and just the contrary he went in there and fought for me and, and i'll never forget that and uh you know it's a good just a lesson of of how someone's supposed to treat people if you get what i'm saying yeah
1: absolutely that makes total sense that's freaking an amazing story um and just the just the honesty and being able to like be open with yourself and yeah like that idea of looking at Nash and I and I'm not sure if everyone had the same viewpoint as you but on some level it was like damn like the little white boy from Vic made it you know what I mean like yes like like wow what am I doing wrong And it it's cool that you've you know stuck to that promise to yourself and and, you know, put your head down and got after it. Like that's, that's, that's good stuff, man. And but I think, and I'm not trying to bail you out, but like in, in that time of your life, you're still pretty young, you know, you're still learning, you're still growing. And, and I think the, the fault would be as if it, you're just stopping growing and you're like, Oh, I've got this figured out and I'm going to coach Lakehead for 30 years and we're going to win the nationals and whatever. But you're like, no, I need to be better and I need to do this. And being a, being, being able to like clear house, that's not an easy thing to do for coaches to, to look all their guys in the face and say, this isn't working, you know, and have everybody go and then bring some people in. That's, that's amazing stuff. Totally get what you're saying. And I, I know there's a lot of young coaches that are listening to the podcast these days and hopefully they can hear that and hear what you're saying. And then tell, tell me what it felt like to, was it, was it a validation internally for yourself to make the CIS final eight and like get there? Or was it like something that you were like, this is what I've tried to get to and knew that if I did it the right way, we would get there.
0: No, it was, it was an unreal feeling. I still remember the, the game, like the game, we beat Ottawa to get in at Ottawa mm-hmm. and being in Thunder Bay, we always flew to game. So we did have to stay in that, in that market the next night um, or the night after the game. So um, that year, I remember two of my assistant coach who were, who end up both being in my wedding a few years later. Um, we just, had the best night. Um, you know, and it was just like a, the massive weight off your shoulders to be able to, to do that. And I just really had a lot of appreciation for the guys, the players, because they had been through a lot, um, to that point in time. And yeah, no, it was a, it was a great moment to, to just be a part of and, and share with those people. Cause those are the guys that now that are, are, we're all kind of bonded for life because of those moments. Yeah. And like, let's be honest
1: with ourselves too like you're also competing in the oua right like this is not a this is not a conference that's like a cupcake sort of you know like ottawa's got a program like carl carlton's got a program like these are in and out the games that you're playing on a nightly basis are they're tough
0: yeah i mean i wouldn't have wanted it any other way that's what made us better just getting our butts kicked so many times um, by all those teams and then finally in my my first six years basically we had you know, one decent year, maybe two. And then my last four, I was there 10 years. So my last four years, we, we end up getting the better of all those teams, with the possible exception of Carlton, but we did get them a couple times, which is getting Carlton a couple times in this era is the same as, you know, getting everybody else a bunch of times. So.
1: 100%. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then you build the program to like making the national final. We will not talk about the score in the national final, but, uh, like i remember watching that game and and being like wow who's this guy that got lakehead to the final because we the when when we were in brandon we would always play lakehead as well right that would have just been 2000 2001 but i know jerry always made a point of trying to to try to play them and, and um how did that feel like to and and touch a little bit on obviously you know you're coaching with the boston celtics now but what was your experience making it to the nationals did you were you guys in um in Halifax, or did you play? Was it move, moved on somewhere else with the opportunities that you had there? And and how was it? And what did the guys feel like? Like I, as a player, I thought it was a very cool experience and really enjoyed the uh, the time there and felt like it was a kind of a big deal.
0: Oh no question. We actually had two years in Ottawa and two in Halifax. So okay for me the the years in Halifax were really special because I grew up going to all those tournaments for the for that whole run they had to, they hosted for about you know 15 years or whatever it was um so a lot of my friends were there watching that wouldn't get to normally see us play being so far away and uh, unfortunately we didn't win the first round either year that uh, Halifax we won a couple games in the Constellation side but it wasn't until the last year in Ottawa where we made that little run and uh, no question when you as you as you know when you win that first game things get a little more fun and a little more hype and people are a little bit more, you know, paying attention to you. And, uh, then you win that second game and it's down to two teams and it's, I mean, it's only a three or four day period, but it feels like a long time when you're there. Um, mm-hmm. just the increased media and the increased crowds and, uh, the games all being on TV. It's a awesome experience for all of us, but especially I, I could imagine playing and it would be far and above, uh, anything else you could, you could get to do at the U sport level. Um, So, yeah, I did some guys that were lucky they got to play in four years. So uh, they had a good run for us, and they really made my career for me.
1: That's cool. Yeah, and, like, you say what you want. um, East Coast people are the best, man. Like, they just – they're so supportive. And, like, I remember going – I mean, the year that we got a chance to play there was that we played St. Mary's in the opening round and then played X in the final. You know what I mean? Like, we got to play the two East Coast schools, and it was like bananas. So it was very, very cool. We want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Parkside Brewery. Located in the heart of Port Moody on Brewer's Row, Parkside offers an amazing atmosphere with one of the best summer patios around. If you can't make it to the brewery located at 2731 Murray Street, then hit any government retail store and try the Dawn Pilsner, the Dusk Pale Ale, or my favourite, the Dreamboat Hazy IPA. A Hoop's Journey promises that the beer at Parkside is much, much, much better than the owner, Sam Payne's streaky jump shot. We hope to see you Parkside. Good Lad Clothing is the most unique shopping experience in the Lower Mainland. The owner, Shane Meyer, has worked hard to create a personal experience, offering clothing, specialized coffee, haircuts, and beard trims. Located in Lower Lonsdale at 221 West Esplanade in North Vancouver, seconds from the sea bus. If you are unable to make it to the store, you can shop online at shopthefoldgroup.com and oh yeah in store if you mention a hoops journey you'll receive 15% off anything store wide and then you so you finish your last year at lakehead are you thinking i'm going to move on or how does how do the main red claws come up on scott morrison's like webpage like how does that happen I, I, that's something that's always been intriguing and wanted to, to ask you, uh, cause I don't know how that transition happens, but are you going to tell me it's another stroke of luck or what?
0: Well, kind of, um, <laughs> it was, it was again, my whole, I feel like my whole life is strokes of luck and then like humbling experiences that I learned from. So basically I think after my, so we, we won the OUA championship my eighth year, I believe at Lakehead. So that was a contract year for me. So, um, Lakehead's not exactly the the Kansas City Chiefs in terms of bankroll. So (laughs) they kind of maxed me out, so to speak. So instead of getting another raise, what I asked for, having learned from Coach Savoy back at Dalhousie when I got my first break there, was to get a sabbatical in my contract. And I wanted to just go learn. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I kind of had in mind that I would just go volunteer with an NBA team. And just spend the whole season with them and learn how the NBA works and then go back to Lake, get a better player uh, or better coach, excuse me. So after that year at the nationals, we graduated seven guys. So I was like, this is as good a time as any to take a sabbatical. Um, and I had tried to contact all 30 NBA teams. I'm not sure I got any response from any of them. So I was kind of like, what the heck am I going to do? It's obviously a little bit harder to just go volunteer for these teams than I thought, um, very naive on my part, but I didn't know any better. And that summer, um, I was doing junior uh, junior national team with Coach Roy Rand. I was his assistant for four years, and Roy suggested trying the D League because obviously the budgets are a lot less, and there's a lot. They're kind of looking for help, and um, it's the minor leagues, but it's still pro. It's still a pretty high level. I said fine. I happened to have two. Um, At the time, D-League head coaches on my Facebook. Uh, Why I had them there, I have no idea. Why do you have half the people on Facebook? We don't know. So Truth, truth. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where (laughs) these guys came from. But one was Bakersfield, Will Voigt, who's now the Angolan national team coach. And uh, Mike Taylor was the coach in Maine. So I first contacted Coach Voigt and went down to Bakersfield for an interview. I worked a guy out. The guy had to go to the hospital. This is not a word of lie. I worked this kid out. He had heat exhaustion. And we had to stop the workout. He went to the hospital. So I was like, all right, probably not the best way to interview. But it (laughs) didn't matter um, because the job was basically a bus driver and laundry guy. No basketball really associated with it. I'd be rebounding, and that's it. So I'm like, all right, well, I have nothing else. Then I emailed the uh, Red Claws coach, Coach Taylor, and he basically offered me the same thing except he'd let me work guys out and he'd let me help with scouts. And I said, sold, because also Maine was a lot closer to PEI. It'd be the closest I've been to PEI in a decade. So I said, I'll do it. So I threw my uh, miniature schnauzer, Moses, in the car and we drove to Maine. And I did the laundry, I did the bus, did the everything for the year and did a bunch of uh, basketball stuff that I could and also worked on – I knew like Coach Savoy, when she did a sabbatical, she wrote a book. So I wanted to do some sort of project that would make me a better coach and and that's what I did. So I did all kinds of stuff like that and had every intention of returning to Lakehead, just hopefully a better coach, being able to teach pick and roll better. Unreal.
1: Uh, you there? Yeah, sorry. Okay, had no to no, no worries. I just take a drink. As a side note, talk a little bit about Moses for those that don't know who Mo the legend of Moses.
0: So Moses,
1: Moses has been there, done that. He's been around the world. I, I, I.
0: Yeah, unlike myself, <laughs> Moses has never had a losing season. Um, he he came into the picture. <laughs> he was born our first um, nationals run at Lakehead. So his first, when he was born, we made the nationals like two months later. Um, year or two later, we won an OUA championship. I have a picture of him with the with the net that we cut down. Um, That's he's awesome. At Lakehead, he was at every practice pretty much, uh, came to work with me every day. And then we went to Maine together. So we spent four years in Maine. Um, he came to the office most days. would stay in the office. He, he kind of retired from the court stuff and went to the front office. And then when I got to Boston, he came with me obviously again. And I took him to – you. used to take him to work on days where he had no team stuff. If I was working somebody, out, I would take him to the Celtics facility. And then one day he got sick. Uh, and threw up all over the uh, analytics department office and I had to stop bringing him. So that was, that was his retirement uh, day, but he, he's, he's, he means a lot to me. Um, now that I have a son, he's probably second. Um, but fair, even my wife fair. would probably argue that he, that he is second. Um, and uh, no, he's just been a great, great companion. And, and he turned things around for me. That's awesome. Love it. <laughs> so tell me, what is
1: life? What is life like? I mean, regardless of what you were doing, then you worked your way up with Maine. But like, what is what's a road trip like with that in that league?
0: How does that work? Well, I didn't I didn't travel my first year. So that that first okay. year, and maybe it's worth pointing out too. Like when I came out of, of UPI and I wanted to play pro, and I didn't think the offers I got were to my level, and I was too proud to take them. This was like the exact opposite. I was a 10-year head coach. I was coaching the, on the national team staff, and now I was folding towels and picking up like literally jock straps. Um, but I think I had learned from that as a player and, and said, no, this is what I got to do if I want to you know, learn and get better, so I'll do it. And we had another intern because I was basically an intern who had finished playing overseas in the ACB named Jim Moran. He had his number retired in the ACB, which is like very rare for especially an American player. And here he is in the same boat as me picking up guys, you know, underwear and their tape off the floor. And he had been, you know, a very successful player. So we're we're like the two oldest interns in the D league. And uh, now Jim's actually on the front bench with the trailblazers. So it worked out for both of us to kind of suck it up and, and just put our time in, um, which is probably the biggest, one of the biggest lessons I, I've learned in all this. But travel was not glamorous then, and it got a little better every year. It's a little better now. But when I was the head coach, you name it, happened to us. Um, I remember one trip we were driving. We, every team has like a little bus that they drive in when they're at home. Um, and then the, the team you go to has their bus they pick you up in, so they drive you around while you're in their, their town. Uh, but we oh, were that, driving. To, that sounds trustworthy. <laughs> yeah. So I was actually the guy that picked the team up my first year and I would drive them around. And, you know, no some way. coaches were cool and other guys were, were kind of dicks. But I um, got to meet some people that way that I still still have, you know, still are, and friendly with, which was cool. Um, but I remember this one trip where we were going to Boston to fly out because it was cheaper. Um, anything for a dollar. So rather than fly out of Maine, we're driving two hours to Boston. And like our exhaust pipe fell off, um, this bus that we had. So my intern at the time, um, gets out, gets it. He, we're on highway 95, like the busiest highway in new England. He pulls over to the side of it. Cars are flying by, honking the horn. He gets out and just walks right into the ditch. And next thing you know, he comes out with like a piece of hay, hay twine or bail, like hay, hay baling twine and like ties up the exhaust pipe. And then we keep on trucking. Um, so like stuff like that happened all the time. And we would just laugh. Uh, I remember another trip. We actually had a real bus because it was too long of a drive for our little local bus. And the bus driver kept falling asleep. Um, what? So I would, so I had one. I always have one. Whenever I'm a head coach, I always have one assistant where their job is to talk to people because I don't like talking to people. And so I was like, all right, you're up. So he had to go up and sit beside the guy and just talk to him to keep him awake. Um, and all my years of driving buses, I never had a bus driver pull over to sleep like multiple times on a five hour trip. So like, it was just basically everything was the bottom of the line. And, uh, kind of just made me appreciate things that we have now that much more. And, um, uh, even being in the NBA for a couple of years, you start to forget where you came from every now and then. And, mm. you know, you complain, you're complaining that the, you know, whatever the, uh, the pillows are a little too soft. Um, at the Four Seasons, and then you realize what the heck am I doing? This is this is like, you know, heaven compared to where we were four years ago. So you make you appreciate it a lot more. Yeah, it also probably makes you
1: realize how like Jake Taylor and Pedro Serrano felt playing uh, for Cleveland in Major League. You know what I mean? Like with the management trying to tell me, you know, the movie Major League, man, it's like work with me here.
0: Oh no, no, we 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 actually attempted to get a cardboard, a blow up cardboard. Um, cut out of our of our CEO and do the yes. same thing they did with their owner but he's just not as attractive as her so it wasn't it wasn't like a reward so we we ax that idea
1: <laughs> you
0: trying to say jesus
1: you trying to say jesus christ can't hit a curveball there's <laughs> a, a lot of shots of rum put it that way yes <laughs> joe boo joe yeah. boo love it um okay so now we're this is great. Like I'm loving this, just so many great stories and just adversity and fighting through things and putting your head down and all that. And then how did the Boston Celtics finally come into fruition for you? Um, is it a phone call? Is a, is it a interview? How does that happen?
0: Well, we had the, the year I interned, I got to know the lower front office guys. Cause they were the guys that were like the GM of the red claws and they were, you know, coming back and forth and you know, telling me what to work on with a couple of the guys who, you know, I was working out on on the side on the team, and um, actually two of the guys I was kind of in charge of working out got end up getting call ups, so that looked good on me, even though I didn't have much to do with it. But I did help a little, you know, get them to kind of focus on you know certain things that the Celtics were looking for um, in their call ups. So I had one guy, um, his name's Dave Lewin. We he was the GM of the Red Claws. He's a young guy, and he was kind of in my corner a little bit. And then I had another guy named Ron Norred who was an assistant that year with Maine. And then he was called up to the Celtics. He was always going to be on that track. He played for, for coach Stevens at Butler. So Ron and I became great friends because I was always asking him, you know, what did the coach do at Butler? And I was, you know, going to take that back to Lakehead. So I had two guys that kind of were in my corner when the coach moved on and they needed a coach, they were kind of pushing for me. Um, but it was tough to crack because because no one else in the Celtics really were thinking of me as a candidate. So Dave Lewin and Ron suggest that I go out to Orlando for summer league. The Celtics are going to Orlando before Vegas and uh, just hang around, you know, they'll get me a pass to the games and watch the games and um, you know, maybe they would have Austin Ainge or Danny or Brad talk to me if I got lucky. So I was there like five days and my friend Jim, who was the other oldest intern was there with me, just we were both trying to get jobs, so um, we were hanging out. We we're probably doing more partying than we were doing anything else at the time. And one morning, I was on the trip, getting on the treadmill, and Ron called me. He's like, "You got whatever you're doing, just drop it. Coach Stevens is willing to meet you for lunch. I'm going to meet, meet be there with him. You got to get to this restaurant in like 15 minutes." So I jumped in the shower and then hopped outside and like hustled over to this restaurant. But Orlando in the summer, as we're about to find out, was like 98% humidity, you know, 30 degrees. So by the time I get there and sit down, I'm, my shirt's drenched. There's just sweat pouring down everywhere on me. Like it's, it's disgusting. I have to get a towel from the waitress and coach Stevens is looking at me like is this, this weird look on his face. Like, are you all right, Scott? Are you like, are you feeling, you know, not feeling good. And, Ron's like, no, coach, don't worry. He's Canadian. He's not used to this weather. And I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> it. So I avoided a, a rough start. Um, but we had we had a good lunch, and then um, you know I was feeling good. Like at least I got a chance at this. I, I wasn't really getting my hopes up. I, it was really nothing I ever planned on trying to do. Um, and then that evening, I go to the games, and Orlando has a media room with a, a soft serve machine. So I'm in there between games and just piling soft serve into me. So I hadn't eaten all day. And I get a tap in my shoulder and I turn around and my face is like half covered in ice cream. I got a mouthful of ice cream and it's it's Danny Ainge. He's like, Why don't you come sit with me for this game? And I was like, trying to get the food out of my, my face. And I said, Sure, you know, sure, Danny. I barely ever talked to the guy, you know, uh, in my life. So I sat with him for the game. And uh, that was kind of like an informal interview. And then about a month passed after that. I think they offered the job to a couple different people in the organization who didn't want it. And then uh, I was out in PEI on vacation. Again, my guy Jim was out there with me, um, helped me with my camp. And uh, Coach Stevens called me and, and offered me the job. And, and that was it. Boom. My next call was to uh, my AD saying I had to leave Lakehead and I would help him find a new coach. And that was, that was all she wrote. Wow
1: and like what's the what's the thought process like are you just losing your mind like this is that's a like that's a crazy four or five year period of your life, right?
0: No it was wild I went from like basically rock bottom in coaching you know on my last legs multiple times to you know getting to be higher spot than I ever thought was possible not not that the d league was you know anything crazy but um, it was something different and I figured, you know, I had a good run at Lakehead. If things didn't work out in Maine, I could always probably get a, a CIS job, you know, down the road if I needed one. Um, mm-hmm. And that would be no shame to me at all. It just, I figured it was a chance worth taking and, and I just I just went for it.
1: Yeah. And then next thing you know, you, you get the Civic. Talk about the Civic. That's a huge moment <laughs> for you.
0: <laughs> well, that was actually after my first year. Uh, oh, was it? Yeah, so we had a good we had a good year. I got my contract renewed, and it was and it was Civic time for sure. <laughs> Windows, Windows tinted. <laughs> I was listening to Rex
1: Chapman on Knuckleheads today, and he bought like a I don't know Mercedes two door, got gold chrome everywhere, had the mullet, and uh, Q Rich and uh, D Miles were going nuts. But hey, a Civic, man, you can put three hundred thousand k on that thing, and it'll still give you loyalty. You know?
0: Oh, I'm not I'm not getting rid of it. My wife My wife kills me because. Even this year I signed a new contract and she's like, you know, we can get you a new car. And I'm like, no, this is, this is my car. It's got a side mirror. It's got a side camera. So I go right signal light. The camera comes on. Like no cars have that now. And the windows are tinted. And she just abuses me, about the windows being tinted. Like, what are you? Like 1970s high school. What is this?
1: Yeah, hell yeah. Do you, I, you I roll, like, into pra- roll into the, roll into the practice facility? You
0: got like jaw rule bumping. Let's go. Whatever I had, I had Mary J Blige bumping the other day. I take control of the 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 stereo in the gym too. So some days the guys want to kill me, and some days they they love me.
1: Love it. Uh, Before we before we let you go and move on to like the lightning round here, what what is like? Obviously not in COVID life, but what just? And I did like I told you before we started. I don't not want this to be a Boston Celtics thing. Your story is amazing, and um so many good takeaways so far, but like, what is a day in the life for you uh, during season and in terms of your role in the coaching staff, if you just touch on that a little bit, just to
0: give people yeah. an idea of, of your responsibilities, if you're okay with that. Yeah, no problem. So basically I'd say my responsibilities are four parts. One, every assistant is assigned, is assigned a couple players. Those are your guys. So I've had the same guys for, couple of years now, Hayward, Ogilvy, and, and Brad Wanamaker. So I'm responsible for their like lighter workouts. You know, they're shooting um, anything outside of what we're planning as a team. Uh, their personal film. So I'll cut all their video. We'll watch video of them. We'll watch video of stuff maybe they should be working on. Things like that. Um, second part is I'm on offensive scouting. So I scout opponents' defenses and, and present coach and the team with kind of like a game plan going into each game. That's my assigned scout. There's three of us that divide the games up for that. And sometimes coach will say, you know, just focus on this, or sometimes he'll, you know, kind of give me control of the video for five minutes. Um, But basically kind of it's my job to know exactly how they're going to defend us, what they're going to do in crunch time, what they're going to do um, against our better players, things like that. And then third part for me is just kind of offensive – I guess, review or film review. So after every game, I'll make an edit. I'll cut maybe 20 to 40 clips of things I think we did well or we could improve or um, something for Coach to see for next time we play that team. And I'll send it to him after every game. So when I get home from the game, that's the first thing I do is is rewatch the offense and, and send Coach a kind of a, a video, I guess, recap of what I thought was important or, or – need to be worked on. And then my fourth um, part, which is was new this past season, is basically I'm in charge of our player development program. Um, and that means I schedule under coach's direction and, and always approved by coach. Or he may even tell me what, exactly what he wants. But I'll schedule um, what times the guys are working out as in groups. We do a lot more group work now than we used to. And I'll schedule the coaches, and I'll plan the, the session again, usually based on what he wants, or he'll give me an idea of what he wants, and then I have the kind of leeway to plan the drills the way the way I see fit, which is probably my favorite part of the job. I love the player development side, and it's just a chance. You don't get much of a chance as an NBA assistant to really lead drills. Um, I might lead one drill in practice every three days, so getting the chance to do a little bit extra on the player development in the smaller groups is really big for me, and it's also helped me become a better coach. So those are my, my four things, and then uh, I try to help out a little bit more during games now that I'm, I'm up front. So I'm kind of on the front lines. Um, I do have some head coaching experience that maybe some of the other coaches in the NBA from assistance point of view don't have. So I try to pick and choose my times. I don't want to be overbearing to coach Stevens, but if I see something important or if I think he maybe isn't seeing something, which is very rare, I'll, I'll try to point it out. Wow.
1: That's awesome, man.
0: That's wow. Like, I mean, after a
1: game, you're getting home at midnight and then you're chopping up tape till three in the morning or what?
0: Yeah. I mean, it depends if we're, yeah. if we're at home, I'm probably getting home around 11 and I'm getting to bed around one. Um, it's not yeah. too bad. And then if we're flying home after a game, usually I have it done by the time we get home. Cause I started on the bus, keep going on the plane and then I'm usually hitting send to coach right about the time we land. And That's then awesome. my favorite nights are probably when we are on the road and stay um, if we have a three-game trip, we're probably going to stay after for the first two games, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, there'll be a nice meal for us. So I'll grab some food and sit in the room, and maybe have a Heineken 0.0 with it, and uh, <laughs> and just take my time and, and relax and kind of enjoy the lifestyle. Because I love the I love the film. Um, that's fine. On the court, my favorite part is the player development, but off the court, my favorite part is the the post-game review.
1: Yeah to see like if what you're trying to apply is working and what you can do better. That's, that's cool stuff, man. Um, if you could Leo, read a couple books and he's an intriguing human being, if there, are like, what are what are five words that would describe coach Stevens to you? Um, and working with him, um, like your relationship or, or how you see him work with people, what are kind of five words that would describe him putting you on the spot here? But,
0: Yeah. um, Well, coach is basically the opposite of how I was at Lakehead. All the stories about anger management, like Coach Stevens (laughs) is the exact opposite. So I I actually think it was a, like, it's kind of funny to me, but at the same time, like, you know what, someone like the Lord or whoever was looking out for me, sending me to Coach Stevens because I've learned Hmm. there's a different way to do things and a better way to do things and seeing him have so much success doing it that way has really helped me. And And that started just, Even when I was in Maine, getting to watch them so close. But the five words I would probably use would be prepared, um, poise, um, calculated, mm, culture, and family that's what I would say. He's, he's always prepared. He stays poised, which I, in my opinion is his biggest edge because when the game's in the line and coaches are going nuts, he's calm and he can access that information that he has in his mind. Whereas other coaches are making possibly more rash decisions and, um, he's very collected. Like he's not going to say something that he hasn't thought about. He's not going to do something that he doesn't have a purpose for puts a lot of thought into everything that he does the culture part is another thing that i've learned a lot from him. just trying to build the team's culture um you know from day one and then the family part is something else like you know just taking an interest in people's families more um trying to plan when possible our schedule around guys with families so they can be you know part of it making sure that the, you know the wives and kids are part of the things and sometimes it's annoying to have all the kids running around, but now to be honest, now that I have a son myself, I see the the benefit of it and why, why it would be important. Hmm. Awesome. That's
1: good stuff. Um, thank you, man. Thank you for opening that up a, a little bit and cracking into that. That's, that's cool stuff. Um, Corbs, do you have a question before we uh, move on to the, uh, most important part of the evening?
2: Oh boy. Um, yeah, it's kind of touched on my initial question. I sent that to Mitch earlier, uh, so I was a little taken aback. But, uh, uh, you know, the kids that I coach will probably look at this podcast and see, you know, Boston Boston Celtics assistant coach, you know, think of Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward, you know, Kyrie, Kemba, et cetera. But um, I'm going to throw some names at you. Just tell me about the, their importance to you and throughout your coaching journey, like uh, Greg Carter, Yusri Salia, Benjamin Johnson, Matthew Schmidt, Brendan King, and Joseph Jones.
0: Right. So those are the guys that took Lakehead to those four four nationals. And um, Greg, Greg and Use were the two kids that saved my job in the first place because um, Coach Parr, like I said, saw the, the greatness in them or the potential greatness and said, hey, maybe we have something here. And then obviously they, they fulfilled kind of what he thought they were going to be. So I owe my whole career to those guys. Um, I would probably be – uh, I don't know what the hell I'd be doing if I wasn't coaching, but I'd be, whatever I'd be doing, not coaching, it would be doing it because if they hadn't shown up, shown up to Lakehead. Uh, and still friends. All of them are still friends to this day. Ryan Thompson, who was one of those guys, actually was worked for me in Maine for two years, and now he's the head coach at Lakehead. So we all try to keep things tight when possible. That's awesome. Cool. Thank
2: you.
1: And you can hear that, like, the small-town loyalty when you speak like that. You know what I mean? I think when you live in a small community and grow up that way, when you have a circle, you value it. And regardless of, you know, your, your circles expanded, but you still recognize that there's circles along the way that you need to maintain and keep tight. That's, that's a dope answer. I I love that. All right, man. You ready? Ready. Okay. What is the greatest chip in the world? You've got, Five bucks you're going to get a bag of what?
0: Ruffles regular. Oh wow. No dip? Sometimes, but it just ruins the, the purity of it for me. I'm a big regular chip guy, and then ruffles yeah. is just out of the out of this another different level.
1: I get the ruffle, yeah. Is it the salt? You like the salt? Love salt. Yeah. All right. At least you didn't say salt and vinegar, Corbs. That's what everybody says. Freaking Miss Vicky's. So um <laughs> To you, (laughs) this could be two-parted, but I know what you're like. You're a loyal dude, um, and I know you're a big Knicks guy. Like, Who was the guy that you grew up watching and loving? And then like, who to you is the greatest basketball player of all time that you've either seen? Um, And it's okay. There's no wrong answer here. I want to just see what what your thoughts are.
0: Right. So I idolized Patrick Ewing growing up. Which is very, very good comp for me. Obviously, being a five eleven guy, um, <laughs> but I loved Ewing. I had a letter published in a magazine called Basketball Digest praising Ewing, complaining they didn't get MVP. I still have a copy of it. Um, probably my childhood top achievement, um, and lived, lived and died like lived and died with the Knicks. Uh, the last dance was just a, kind of a bad walkthrough, you know. Horrendous memory lane uh, for me as a fan, but still, still loyal to Ewing. I actually finally um, this past season got a pair of Ewing shoes signed by Ewing when we practiced at Georgetown. So it was like it was like ten year old me was was just flying high for like six days straight. <laughs> and probably the best. I mean, I would always say Jordan's the best, but in terms of who I've like seen live or up close, I have to go with LeBron haven't been around the league here for three years. Like I'm, I'm now I'm kind of like a become like an old, you know, grizzly guy. My first mm-hmm. year, like everyone, I was always like, Oh my God, that's Westbrook. That's hard. Oh, this is crazy.
1: All right. So we'll, uh, we'll allow you to say that LeBron James is the best player you've ever seen because you have a little bit more eyes on the game than we do, but let's move on to some more important questions. Like we know you're a, a hip hop guy. Um, who are, in your opinion, the top five greatest rappers ever? And we, we've we only had, Corbs, how many people have we asked, asked this question? Like two, because not everybody, you know, I'm not trying to hear everybody's answer on this, but I am willing to hear yours because I respect, you know, your thoughts on this. So who, who in your opinion?
0: Well, I might take a little bit of heat because I know you're, you're more of a traditionalist, more of a purist. Um, I do tend to sometimes sway to the, Poppy side of it, but um, for me, number one is always Biggie. Um, I think he's a great rapper, but it also was like a, a you know, big time in my life you know, high school, uh, university era. So, um, a lot of good memories when his songs come up. Uh, number two is Chuck D um, because I think he's also a great rapper, he has some intelligence to it, and again. Those years growing up with the with my dad's UPI team, there was a lot of public enemy being played in the back of the van. Um, so that's kind of introduced me to it, and, and I still listen to it today. I actually played it at, at the practice facility the other day. Um, three controversial pick, Drake. Um, oof. I know the, the, the purists like you and Larkins, the so-called purists, scoff at this <laughs> pick, but if you t- – I have Apple music and Apple music. You type in an artist's name and essentials and their essential songs come up. Man, it's hard to find someone with a better essentials playlist than Drake, or at least as many hits. Plus he's Canadian, regardless of what you think of him, he makes songs that you like Four is method, man. Ooh. I like Wu Tang, but I thought method was probably the best of Wu Tang, at least in my opinion. Um, Also, the track The What with Biggie is probably my favorite uh, track of all time. Off Ready to Die. Yes, and Biggie actually was quoted as saying that Method killed him on that. And it's rare that he would ever admit or agree that someone beat him um, rapping and Method Man beat him in that that track, according to Biggie. And then five, I'm going to go with Eminem. It might be a corny pick like Drake, in your opinion, but the guy can rap, and those first two albums before he got sober were fire.
1: I love it. just leaves it fire. No, I'm down. Eminem, huge Eminem fan. I, I think people just, they focus more on his drop-off than anything else, right? They focus on what happened to him after, but you're absolutely right. Those albums were unbelievable. Um, love that you didn't even just say Public Enemy, Chuck D. I'm down, I'm down. Drake, you already know my thoughts on that. Well, <laughs> I don't know my thoughts on that, but Meth Two is like he's that guy. I've heard him on a few kind of solo tracks with other people recently. In the last few months, he sounds almost even better. Like that voice and the the flow. He's definitely my favorite Wu Tang member for sure. Um, good call, like it. Nice. What? That's a good call for people that don't know that track. Check it out. The beat, the back and forth a nice tune right there i'll throw um, in a
2: clip right now i'll put it I in the. Uh, uh,
1: i you wouldn't disappoint
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the most important person in your life has been
0: well i mean i've had a few of them but I currently i have to definitely say my wife and son uh, my wife suzanne my son max i met my wife the week after i got hired with the red claws so she can't take any credit for me getting that job um But she definitely deserves a lot of credit for any success or or growth forward that I've had since then. Um, She's been a great influence on me, and um, I I really don't know what I'd do with that. Or then, obviously, I never was really a big family guy. And then uh, when we had our son, Max, it really kind of changed my perspective on life and um, just wanting to be a better person for both of them. If, if someone can make you want to be a better person for them, then that, that means they're pretty important to you, I think, whether you realize it or not. So that's what my answer would be for that. It's awesome, man.
1: Love it. And that means you. after the bubble season, you can still go home with your head up high. So that's good. Well done. Um, what are your thoughts? East coast, catch up on macaroni.
0: So I'm not eight years old. Um, I don't put ketchup on pretty much anything with the possible exception of fries, the odd time, but normally I like mustard on fries. Wow. Um, Yeah. I actually had this argument. We have a couple Australians on our staff uh, in the sports science side. And they were telling me one day about putting steak or ketchup on steak. And I nearly got up and left the room. Um, I just not a big ketchup guy.
1: Like I'm okay with ketchup here or there. Not a macaroni and ketchup on steak might be the most offside thing I've ever heard of in my entire life, right. but mustard on fries—I'm gonna have to give that a go.
0: Yeah, it's more of a dipping. I, I'd start with the dipping, and then if you really if you really buy into it, then you just pour it on. Wow,
1: the pour on.
0: <laughs> wow,
1: Corbs.
2: I, I, I'm i going to have to yeah. try that too. I'm just, I, I just did not he, expect that.
1: Just when you thought this podcast couldn't get any better.
0: <laughs> and last question. That wasn't the highlight of it.
1: No, not at all. It's been great. Last question. Um, and honestly, thank you so much. This is going to be, there'll be so many listeners, I feel like, for this one. All right, we'll go from like 40 to 51. Um, <laughs> and uh, just the stories and everything, I think you you have a unique a unique journey and it's very cool. Um, If you could do it all again, you would. I
0: probably wouldn't do anything different. Um, And it's not that I don't have a bunch of regrets or at least some, or some, maybe a better word is curiosities if I had done something different, but I, I I honestly can say I like where I am now and I wouldn't want to mess with the chance of, of getting back here Um, even at the possible, you know, Possible slim chance that maybe I could be somewhere better, but I don't think it's, you know, really feasible. If you're happy and you're happy with what you do and you've reached a certain high level that I I like to think that I'm at right now, but even if I could hopefully go a little further later, um, none of that would have been possible without all those things that I did and a lot of the mistakes that I made. So um, I probably wouldn't do anything different. I also learned from, I want to say, season six of the Simpsons Halloween episode when Homer creates the time traveling toaster. And every time he goes back in time, he like, like just by stepping on an insect, for example, he just changes the course of his life and history as we know it. So, um, I wouldn't want to go back and mess with too much, uh, at the risk of, of losing the stuff that I have now. And a
1: Simpsons reference, man, I, for a second there, I thought somehow you were going to incorporate the wire to keep Larkins happy, but, you know what? I think uh, throwing in a Drake a Drake jab is enough. Um, Corbs, any last comments or questions before we let uh, Mister Morrison on his way?
2: Um, no, not not really. I mean, I think uh, like I was just doing a lot of research for this pod, right? Just you know, I see that a lot of your assistants or former players are now coaching CIS. I think your former assistant Mark English just won AUS Coach of the Year this year. I think. That yep. I correct on that yeah so it must be cool for you to kind of see you know, you know you've had a lot of lucky breaks in your journey and and they've you know had a chance to learn under you and you know take what they've learned from you and you know apply it to their work now so
0: yeah no I, mean, I think it's fair to say we've, we've all learned from each other um, but I think it's important if you ever have a chance to give someone else an opportunity that maybe you were lucky enough to get, or, or you, you weren't lucky enough to get. You, you try and do so, uh, and just being a Canadian, um, one of the few Canadians in the in the, you know, NBA or G League. That if I have an opportunity to give another Canadian that I believe in a chance to get some experience, or or maybe even something that would lead to a, a job, then I'm definitely going to always do that. And uh, maybe someday down the road when I do hit that run out of luck and get fired, uh, one of them will help me out and get me a job.
1: Well, we could be looking for a new junior boys coach at St. Thomas More Collegiate in the next couple of years. So uh, if, you, uh, if you if you want to make your way well, out west, you know we'll see what we can do.
0: i tell you, the way things are going in this country right now, my wife would probably be uh, keeping you on speed off that offer if things get, get any worse. Um, yeah. But I'll, but I'll try to stick it out for a couple more seasons anyway. You got it.
1: Um, From the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for, you know, taking the time. Literally, for those that don't know, got off the plane and still wanted to stay true to his word and and do this episode. Um, Now you've got uh, 30, what, 34 more hours or 30, 35 and a half hours to stay in your room before you can get out and we wish you guys nothing but the best, the Celtics, nothing but the best, but you guys, you know, I hope everyone stays healthy and happy down there and and can make the best of the experience. And um, I hope everyone comes away healthy as well. And that um, when they get a chance to get back to their families and and I know that you'll be missing yours and doing a lot of FaceTiming, but uh, also take, like you said, this is a year um, and a time for the ages. Um, I think of our grads from our high school this year and just what they can tell their story in 20 years and that what you'll be able to tell what it was like to be, you know, in the bubble in Orlando um, for the 2020 NBA season is pretty wild. So we do genuinely really appreciate um, you taking the time to, uh, to connect with us uh, because I think your story is unique and it's important and it's truly Canadian, which is awesome. Um, and before you go, if there's any other shout outs you want to give or just a uh, last couple of jabs at anyone who you think might be listening, now's your chance. And then you can go and, uh, unpack the rest of your bags and get, and get settled in.
0: Ah, No, no, I have, I have no jabs to throw. Um, but I really appreciate you guys inviting me on. It was, it was an honor. And, um, yeah, definitely helped me, uh, kill a couple hours here, but I, but I really enjoyed talking and appreciate you asking me.
1: Right on all the best, you know, going forward. I know we'll keep in touch. We're going to make that coaching clinic happen out here and get you out here. And, uh, show us some of those offensive uh, X and O's that you're working on and um, spend a weekend and we can cruise you around uh, Vancouver and show you the good spots. So looking forward to that moment and um, definitely need a feed state uh, trip sometime coming up to Your hands are full for a few years, but uh, when your uh, wife says you're free, then uh, we'll have to make something happen. So thanks
0: again and be well. I appreciate it guys. Have a have a great night. And uh, thanks again.
1: You got it. That's it for a hoops journey. Thanks for tuning in. Everybody take care of each other. Like coach said, you know, let's just settle down. Let's respect each other. Let's treat each other uh, well. And, uh, you know, we'll see you on the next episode.